0: Support for Defiance comes from Kraken. Consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O.
1: So my name's Isaac Saul. I'm a reporter, journalist, New York based. Um, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a bellwether county in the state of Pennsylvania. It's one of the most like hotly contested, politically divided places in America.
0: You might remember Isaac from last week's episode of Chaos, a journalist who has been reporting on US politics for the last seven years. I reached out to Isaac as he had written a mega thread on Twitter debunking many of the false accusations and conspiracies regarding the US election.
1: About a year ago, I started a newsletter called Tangle, which basically identifies the best arguments being made by the right and the left in America on whatever the news of the day is. And then I summarise them so readers can see exactly what conservatives and liberals in America are arguing rather than sort of living inside their own news echo chambers.
0: Yahoo named Isaac one of the top 16 people that shaped the 2016 election with his reporting.
1: Each newsletter includes my take after I share the left and the right side so I'm very transparent about whatever my positions are on the news of the day but I also give people the arguments to sort of defeat whatever my own perspective is. So sort of considered like a very transparent, full, holistic look at the US media
0: landscape. Tangle intrigued me, so I signed up. I had myself been struggling at times with this project in trying to find objective truths. For each story, I was having to wade through partisan articles which would report on the story from entirely different perspectives. And social media was worse as i couldn't find reliable impartial sources
1: i was very dialed in and prepared for this election and obviously one of the things that i knew was coming was that there was going to be this flood of misinformation and conspiracy theories around the election results and so it was sort of something i was prepared for and tracking when it started that's basically how i ended up in the position i was this week
0: The accusations, which Isaac has been debunking, spread like wildfire, with people claiming a smoking gun has been found or that this definitely proves that the election has been stolen. And his megathread is now hundreds of tweets long, covering everything from Sharpiegate to Trump's lawsuits, and has been retweeted nearly 35,000 times. But that 35,000 times does not compare to the millions, maybe tens or even hundreds of million times that the false accusations themselves have been liked, retweeted or read. And what about those confronted with false allegations? Do they even care? Do they just retweet and move on as winning has become more important than the truth? This poses a much bigger question. How damaging is social media to truth finding? My name is Peter McCormack. And this is Echo Chambers, part five of Chaos, a podcast series for defiance.
2: I can tell you that every time in the past year I've told somebody what I study, their response has always been, oh wow, that's so timely. We're in a time of intense outrage and partisan division.
0: This is Dr. Victoria Spring, a postdoctoral fellow at New York University.
2: And a lot of my research is specifically on outrage in political context and partisan intergroup context. So uh, I feel like we see a lot of examples in the real world lately of things that are relevant to my research and my passions. We do know that like partisanship is like, it's a group identity. It's something that gives people a feeling of belongingness and meaning and makes their moral values feel justified and righteous. And so when they are encountered with all of this partisan information through the news on a 24-hour cycle that's a constant reinforcement of that identity and of those values
0: after watching jay van bavel's ted talk for the previous episode of chaos where he discussed the danger of the partisan brain i reached out to his lab as i wanted to understand how news affects people
2: i would reach towards something called social identity theory which suggests that we define ourselves and our identities by the groups that we belong to so it's a very like foundational Human experience. Like all of us want to define our identities. We do that through looking at what religion we belong to, what university we attend, what sports team we support, and what political party we join. And I would say it's not coming from something external to us. It's us trying to manifest like a very foundational human drive to fulfill those needs I mentioned earlier of like belonging and identifying like your moral values and feeling distinct from another group.
0: I wanted to understand what this meant in the context of the news.
2: And so you continually see, like, if you're watching a left-wing biased news source, your values and your group identity uh, being reinforced and being validated. And, you know, you're being shown this news, these current events through a lens that makes you feel as if you're justified and you're correct in believing what you believe and adhering with your party's values. And same thing on the other side with the right-wing news source and right-wing news. And there's also constant examples of ways in which you can perceive your party to be superior to the other party. So if you're right-wing and you see the Black Lives Matter protests and you conceive of those as being riots, maybe to you that's reinforcing because now you can think, well, my party would never do that. It's the other party that does that, the other party that's bad. And there are other examples as well for the left-wing viewing right-wingers not wearing masks, protesting against. Uh, being asked to wear masks during the COVID pandemic. And so the more examples of these you get and the more constantly you're exposed to them, the stronger your group identity will be. And the stronger your group identity is, the more partisan you feel.
0: And this identifies the challenge which Isaac has in creating honest and fair opinion. The number
1: one challenge for me is to just be courageous and honest about what my Actual views are. I mean, the the promise that I'm making to my readers is that I'm not going to hold back my own biases. Everybody has biases, and I think in terms of the most difficult stuff that comes up, it's typically around avoiding like the charlatans and the loudest voices and the people who are getting the most oxygen. What I've found um, from writing the newsletter is that. The reality of the situation is people actually aren't being presented with the best arguments that the other side is making. So, if you're a liberal in America, you very rarely are approached by the most compelling arguments that are being made in conservative circles. Instead, you're being fed the worst arguments being made in conservative circles because those are the arguments that are elevated by liberal pundits and liberal commentators and liberal journalists on the left. They, they elevate and give oxygen to the bad arguments because they're the easiest ones to knock down. And so what I've realized from writing this newsletter is that the best arguments and the most compelling cases for certain issues related to American politics are often the ones you hear the least because they're the hardest to address and grapple with and they create the most nuance and complexity.
0: This issue of Bad Arguments resonated with an email I received after releasing part one of Chaos. It read, Politicians have created false choices on the most important issues of the day, creating false narratives about what the other side believes, creating a them versus us. This has in turn created a false battle This false battle is magnified and exploited by the profit structures of news and social media. James Murdoch, the son of Rupert Murdoch, gave a speech at the Edinburgh International Television Festival in 2009. He wanted an overhaul of how broadcasting is run and regulated in the UK. As Orwell foretold,
1: to let the state enjoy a near monopoly of information is to guarantee manipulation and distortion that we must have a plurality of voices, and they must be independent.
0: He attacked the BBC and how its licence fee has created an unfair market for broadcasters. The land grab is spearheaded by the BBC. The scale and scope of its current activities and future ambitions is chilling. But it was his closing line, designed to champion the free market for news, which highlighted a bigger issue, when he said there is an inescapable conclusion that we must reach if we are to have a better society. The only durable and perpetual guarantor of independence is profit. But when profit is driven by advertising, how does this skew the independence of news?
1: Part of what I do with Tangle is I have no advertisers. And the newsletter is entirely subscriber supported and independent. And the reason that I do that is because I know from working at a half dozen of the most popular news outlets in America, that oftentimes headlines, leads, quotes that are chosen, structures of stories are designed with the incentive of what's going to drive the most traffic, because more traffic means more ad revenue.
0: With the declining sales of newspapers and magazines and growing competition online, traditional publishers have struggled to evolve their business model. And the golden rule of journalism is that your introduction should grab the reader. But with the print press, this is not measurable. Yet with online media, clicks are directly correlated to profit as ad revenue is based on impressions. This incentivizes publishers to create content for clicks. I
1: never want this thing that I've created to be driven by anything except satisfying my subscribers' desire to see a wide range of legitimate, compelling views in a newsletter. And so that's what I'm setting out to do. So yeah, I think it's a hundred percent true. And I think you know, you can see it right now with the election being quote, unquote, contested. Um, probably the best example of it is that, a talking point that has emerged on the right in the last week is that they want every legal vote to be counted in America, which is, of course, a farcical straw man argument. There's nobody contesting that illegal votes should be counted in America. Nobody has made that argument, but they've invented this argument that they're saying the other side is making they're they're creating this this argument on the left that nobody on the left is making, which is Oh, we want every vote to be counted whether it's illegal or not. No, nobody said that, but they've now created this mantra that they want every legal vote to be counted. And the implication, of course, is that there are people who want illegal votes to be counted, which is just not true. It's totally detached from reality.
0: I talked to Isaac about the fact that I was struggling to find objective truths, that on any specific issue, If my position is critical of Trump, then I'm told I'm wrong. Yet if I come to a pro-Trump position, then I must have fallen for his lies. I
1: think that the media has certainly played a huge role. I think, um, you know, related to some of the stuff it sounds like you're digging into social media is obviously a major contributor. I mean, I think anybody who's watched Social Dilemma or spent any time on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram can attest... To the fact that they very rarely run up against views that are not their own in their immediate, you know, social media circles.
0: The Social Dilemma was a recent documentary looking at the rise of social media and the wider damage that it is doing to society. The film highlights how platforms such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter are programmed to nurture addiction. I think the
1: story in a historical context is a lot more difficult to ascertain. But I do think that the nature of the news cycle that we have, at least in the US, the 24-hour news cycle where um, major media networks and newspapers across the country are constantly looking for a story to cover in order to fill the space, has created a really dire situation. 20 years ago, I don't think Many Americans were spending, you know, six hours a day watching cable news television. You know, maybe they tuned in for like the 7pm primetime NBC broadcast to see what happened that day. Or maybe they watched CBS 60 Minutes on Sundays.
0: This was something which came up in the first episode of Chaos when I interviewed Chart and Julie. Both had identified how politics was now woven into the fabric of society.
3: I don't remember people in the U.S. talking about politics ever before as much as they do now.
2: Now politics is everywhere. It's in your face, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, all over the place.
1: The world that we're in today is that there's a big chunk of voting Americans who are just consuming a constant barrage. Of news. And depending on where they're getting it, that news is just pushing them deeper and deeper into whatever their partisan beliefs are. And then I think, you know, when you talk about ascertaining an objective truth, I think there's a fundamental flaw in that goal, which is that uh, the truth is hard to ascertain. And not enough people are willing to acknowledge that. that, you know, the the left is obsessed with data and the idea that you know a, a graph of numbers can tell a complete story. And I also reject that idea. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that numbers alone can explain how an electorate is moving or can explain the trends that we're seeing. And I think one of the great things about President Trump is that he has upended a lot of narratives related to that i mean we we're seeing it right now in this election 35% of latinos in america just cast the ballot for trump more than 1 in 3 despite the narrative that you'll encounter in much of the mainstream press here which is that trump is you know an obvious racist who loathes these people and they loathe him back trump performed better in america with muslims than Jews in this election he got 35% of the muslim vote and 30% of the jewish vote according to ap's vote cast i don't think anybody who follows the news tangentially would have expected that before the election but it's what happened so the the reality is the truth is messy and there's a lot of nuance and you know it's easier to have a hard and fast black and white conclusion than it is to say, hey, this issue is complicated and has depth, and you know, maybe I won't ever know exactly what the the quote unquote truth is. Now, I I don't think that means there isn't a reality, and I don't think that means we can't offer a holistic view of the reality. But um, I do think it means that you know the the mission to find a black and white truth has, has like a very deep contradiction and flaw because there there is no real black and white truth on a lot of the issues that the the press is trying to tackle
0: both chart and julie said to me that they didn't expect that the election result would be called on the evening and they were right we are over a month out now and trump is yet to concede and there are still ongoing lawsuits i wanted to know what isaac made of this
1: I think that the polls were woefully off in a lot of cases, but I think that one of the things that the polling industry does seem to have a grasp on is like the the national popular vote, which um, I think they will end up landing pretty close to the margin of error in this election. So based on that alone, I thought that Biden had the advantage in a lot of swing states, and given that, I felt like Trump was going to outperform the polls. I also concluded that the race was probably going to be closer than people were expecting. I was not expecting a Biden landslide. I didn't expect him to win Florida and end the election on Tuesday night. And so once you get, you know, that's first base and second base. And once you get there, third base is, you know, do I believe that President Trump was going to go down without a fight? And the obvious answer to that question was no. So, yeah, I was expecting that they were going to mount some legal challenges for recounts and they were going to claim voter fraud. Uh, Also, you know, I mean, remember, Trump won in 2016 and he claimed millions of votes were cast illegally in an election that he won. So uh, it wasn't particularly prescient for me to be like, okay, he's going to say that people voted illegally again in an election he lost. I mean, I think that was a pretty obvious conclusion to draw. So that was sort of how I got there. But, you know, I do want to just say that unlike past elections that I think have been fought in the court in U.S., like the 2000 Bush v. Gore election, I do not think that President Trump has any legitimate paths to overturning the results of this election.
0: It is worth comparing the two, as some Republicans have used the fact that Gore contested the 2000 election as a precedent for Trump's actions. But in that case, a few hundred votes in Florida decided the presidency. Whereas here, Trump is challenging the results in four states where the margin of victory is in the range of tens to hundreds of thousands of votes.
1: I expected this fight to happen, but I also expect the conclusion of this fight to be pretty anticlimactic. And I think that's reflected both in how the courts have already ruled in some of these cases, and also reflected in what some of the legal experts and lawyers who were involved in that 2000 Bush v. Gore fight, which was one of the most, you know, divisive moments in political history, are saying about these claims that the president's making and this election fight, which is a pretty unanimous this is a nothing burger and they're not going to win any of these races, any of these contests.
3: I'm Jen Golbeck. I'm a professor in the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. I'm a computer scientist by training. My PhD is in computer science. Uh, and I study social networks, artificial intelligence, and kind of all the bad stuff that happens on the internet, which includes misinformation, disinformation, bots, all the stuff we're talking about now.
0: Despite Isaac's claims that this is a nothing burger, Trump has continued to tweet daily that the election is a fraud and has been stolen. This has rallied his supporters, and I wanted to understand more about how social media networks disseminate information.
3: This is something that we were studying ahead of the 2016 elections, and after everything went so badly then, uh, we've really been following it since then. If we look just at this election, one of the most profound things that we have seen is that before the election, like even a couple days before the election, trust in the electoral process in the US was pretty high on both sides, from the right and the left.
0: In the weeks that followed the election, various polls have indicated that between 70 and 80% of Republicans did not trust the media's declaration that Biden had won. Prior to the election, the majority of GOP voters had trust in the election process, but now these voters believe that the election was fraudulently swung in the Democrats' favour.
3: There's always these kind of rumors of massive fraud, but we have very secure elections. There's very rarely fraud. And even among Republicans, with all the stuff Trump was spewing ahead of the election, they still had pretty good faith in the process. After Tuesday, you know, when the results started coming in and it wasn't looking that great for Trump and he started tweeting a lot of these things about the election being rigged, uh, surveys showed that trust in the election and the electoral process on the right wing by Republicans dropped to like 30%, this dramatic drop from where the vast majority trusted the process to now, in just this week after, the vast majority don't trust the process and think it's fraudulent. That's entirely because of the rhetoric from the president. If he had accepted these results on Saturday, uh, given a concession like every other president has done, it certainly in modern history, Um, and pretty much in the history of our country, this would have gone away. And instead, he has really stoked this distrust in the process, which on one hand, you can go is very classic Trump. He doesn't care what he destroys along the way. He just does whatever he does. On the other hand, you know, as a very patriotic American, it's so sad to me because like the, our elections are something that we have always held sacred, that we really have this American uh, identity as you know, voting is so important and this is something that we do well. And so to have, even if it's temporary, to have that kind of drop in the trust that people have in that institution, in that process, that's at the heart of our democracy is really upsetting. Um, and I think illustrates the power that this president has just with a few tweets to really swing a huge, huge part of the American population towards his conspiracies.
0: And this is what brought me to Isaac, trying to fact check each accusation. But there are just too many, both coming from the Trump administration and also from conservative commentators.
3: It's all a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. So the Sharpie thing was in Arizona that some precincts had people using Sharpies to fill in the bubbles on their ballots, and it was bleeding through to the other side. So there was an argument that the Sharpies were only given to Republican voters. Of course, this isn't a thing that you actually know when you're going in. Um, And that that was used to invalidate their ballots, which there's no evidence that those ballots were invalidated. In fact, the election officials say, if you used a Sharpie, your ballot is fine. People kind of grab onto these theories to say, oh, there was this big operation to disenfranchise all these Republican voters. Um, And of course, a lot of that is now happening around mail-in voting, which is usually a very small percentage of votes in the US. But because of COVID, it was in a lot of states, the majority of votes this year. We actually did a very good job making sure that was secure, allowing people, if they had an error on their ballot, like their signature didn't match the official one, letting them fix it. It's gone very well, but there's a lot of conspiracy, and Trump himself has pushed this since well before the election that people would, say, be stealing your ballot, voting for you, sending it in, and there was nothing that you could do. All of that's patently untrue. There's no evidence of any problems. People are, are really grabbing onto that and just making wild accusations with absolutely no foundation.
0: The tricky thing in even pulling this episode together is that, as I'm writing this, a comment came in from a previous episode on YouTube. It read... This series tried to be non-partisan, but clearly leans left. This is tricky personally, because I've wanted to create something impartial. But as we get into the detail of the election and the claims of fraud, I have spent weeks looking at these accusations. And like the courts, I'm yet to find anything which proves a fraud. And this was something I asked Isaac about.
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Election fraud does happen and voter fraud does happen. And those two things are not non-existent in U.S. politics. The question is whether we've had examples of election fraud in this election that have somehow been insidious enough and widespread enough that they've changed the outcome of the election. And the answer to that question to me is clearly no. So far, the most legitimate and the strongest case of voter fraud or election fraud that I've seen in this election happened in Texas with a social worker who I believe registered about 134 people to vote without their consent. And she's been charged and she's going to court on 134 counts of felony election fraud. She faces 10 years in prison. And in America, you're innocent until proven guilty. So I'm not going to sit here and say that She committed the crime until it's tried. But uh, we have no idea who she was registering those voters for yet. So she very well could have been trying to help President Trump or a Republican Senate candidate. And we also don't know if she's guilty, but we do know that there was enough evidence for her alleged crime that she's actually going to go to court over them. She's being charged over them, which to me, again, is proof of the reality that when these things happen, and when there's evidence for them, people actually get charged. It's not just like a retweet or a video on Twitter that has five million views. It's there are officials involved and authorities involved and they're tracking this stuff down. And so to me, the fact that I see somebody on some 10 second Twitter clip filling out a ballot who's a poll worker at an election place is not proof of voter fraud. It's proof that some election workers likely doing their job and fixing some soiled ballot that a machine couldn't read and, you know, filling in the bubble all the way so someone's vote is counted. I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen in American elections every day all across the country. So uh, I, I am confident that the election that we have had this year is been totally fair. And I do believe that there will probably be instances of election fraud or voter fraud that come to light and that those instances will be tried. But we're talking about margins of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 votes. We're talking about a popular vote of 4 million.
0: The popular vote margin is now over 7 million in Biden's favor. I mean, the most, the, the, the average
1: recount in America overturns about 400 or 500 votes and typically those votes are not overturned in the way that the people who are charging the recount want them to be. Oftentimes people get a recount and it backfires on them. That happens here too."
0: As an example, Georgia has now counted the votes on three occasions and each time the state has found Biden the winner. I have not been able to find confirmed proof of voter fraud, let alone a fraud of the scale required to swing the election. There is no impartial way to spin this. And I know this is going to trigger some Republican voters who may be interpreting things differently from me, maybe seeing the evidence differently, or have just lost faith in the entire process. And this is the biggest issue. Trust has been lost in the election process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's already been broken. I, I One of the dynamics that I don't think people are discussing enough or understanding enough right now is that uh, I I think in many ways, Trump has sort of lost control of his supporters. If you want to talk about it that way, I think it's a bit of a runaway train. I do not think that if the president were in a best case scenario to come out today and say, We've pursued every legal action possible. We couldn't produce evidence of voter fraud. I'm conceding the election. Congratulations, Joe Biden. I think if he did that, there would still be 15% of the country, give or take, firmly rooted in this belief that somehow somebody got to Trump and flipped him and some sort of pressure is forcing him to do this. And it was the deep state and that, you know, they saw the proof for themselves and they don't need the president to tell them whether the election was legitimate or not. And I think those people are gonna not trust the process, uh, you know, for the the rest of time, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what changes their minds. But I do think that we've already seen that in a few cases. I, I think we've seen places in the history of the Trump presidency so far where his supporters have started to deviate Away further down um, certain rabbit holes that he's not even taking them at this point. And that to me is extremely concerning and troubling. And I think the airwaves have been flooded enough with misinformation about election fraud that we're not going to be able to coax some of those people back into believing that the election was legitimate, even if all of these legal avenues fail, even when Joe Biden's eventually inaugurated, all of these things that I'm certain are going to happen, I I still don't think that those people are going to come back to the table believing that the election was honest or fair. And in America, that is a huge deal.
0: So what can be done? How can America come back from this? I wanted to understand from Victoria the problems which partisan news causes.
2: It's all about where you have the audience to direct their attention on the news story. So if you're having them direct their attention to a party salient characteristic then that's going to like really make them focus on the partisanship side of it and make them feel increasingly partisan whereas if you direct their attention to just the facts like say we're talking about climate change and it's something about climate change and you talk about you know scientists and you don't mention pol- politics at all maybe you even use a few right wing scientists saying things in support of climate change i would think that the person who's viewing it if they're right wing they might be more they might be more willing to accept that news story than if you're saying oh well here are the facts but then republicans think this and democrats think that so you would have to somehow get in there and work on people's goals and like make them have a goal of caring about accuracy more than about identity but i think there would be a way for a media company to manipulate whether or not people felt more or less partisan after viewing a piece of objective news
1: I think that there are two things that could be done uh, specifically. One is you'll notice that we did not have a lot of these conspiracies floating around states like Ohio or Florida, uh, which are states where, you know, the race was expected to be tight. Um, Part of the reason we're not having those allegations is because the right is largely responsible for spreading those allegations right now and Trump won Ohio and Florida, so they're not spreading allegations about voter fraud there. But the other reason why is because Florida and Ohio have updated the way that they count mail-in absentee ballots and. They've done that by sorting and processing those ballots and counting them not just on election day, but in the time leading up to election day, which has made it much easier for them to get an actual result out on election night, which is what we saw in this election. In Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Arizona, in Nevada, the state legislators refused to update the way that they ran their elections in order to accompany what they knew was gonna be a gigantic wave of mail-in ballots. And every election expert, from the secretary of states in these states, to governors, to pollsters, to election forecasters, they all said the exact same thing for the weeks leading up to the election, which was, we're not gonna get a result on the night of the election, and we're gonna see, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, President Trump jump out to a really early lead when the results are released from in-person voting right away, and then the mail-in vote results come out after the fact. So they called it the Red Mirage, and that's exactly what we saw. Which brings me to the second point, which is that we should not be releasing the results of these elections piecemeal the way that we do. It's designed literally only to have people dialed in their TVs and pump up the ratings and watch the results come in and see it as if it's a race, as if someone's ahead or someone's losing and someone's catching up and someone's behind. That's not what's happening in these races. The, the outcome is preordained. The votes have already been cast. There's nobody winning. It's a static thing. We're just getting them in a piecemeal fashion where it creates the illusion that there's a race, that people are taking leads or losing leads or whatever. And so I hope that in four years, and I don't expect this to happen, but it would be my dream is that states hold on to their election results until they have all the votes tallied and then they just release them at once at a certain time. And that way there's no big, huge buildup and you know, I guess illusion of people being in the lead or losing the lead or whatever, because that's not really how an election works. Um, I don't think that change is gonna happen, but I do think that there is now enough political energy at, at the very least for us to update the way that we handle Counting mail in votes and releasing absentee votes and those sorts of things. So, you know, it's clearer from the get go how the race is shaping up.
0: Before I finished, I spoke to Victoria one last time to ask whether there were any dangerous consequences of not fixing this issue.
2: So, yeah, there are dangerous outcomes. Just look at, you know, a family sitting around their Christmas dinner table this season. Um, And all of the arguments that are probably going to happen, the family strife that will arise, people who will declare, I'm never speaking to you again because you don't agree with me politically. That's a negative outcome in a lot of ways. But a different perspective on that same outcome could be that, well, maybe, depending on your goals, if your goal isn't to have like a cohesive family unit, and your goal is for that person to change their mind, to feel shamed and embarrassed of their beliefs that you disagree with, maybe you're achieving that. so that's kind of what I mean in terms of positive versus negative perspectives on the same outcome. But I, I feel reasonably confident in saying that extreme partisanship does have a lot of dangerous outcomes. Just because, with any kind of intergroup interaction, whether it be political or racial or religious, uh, the more partisan and the more intensely you view that identity as being relevant to yourself and your personal identity, the more likely you are to justify doing really atrocious behaviors in defense of it. So, like the Crusades, for example, you want to spread Catholicism uh, so you don't mind killing people if they don't convert to Catholicism. Uh, Maybe not as extreme at this moment with uh, political partisanship, but, or maybe it is. I mean, we do see people, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse going to protest that he doesn't agree with politically and killing people. like People are willing to engage in violence, like actual violence and even mass violence in defense of their political ideals. And the more partisan you feel, the more likely that kind of violence is to happen.
0: With division and partisanship becoming more extreme and potentially violent, I asked Victoria if there is anything that can be done to turn things around.
2: There are a lot of people who are working on various ways to decrease partisanship. Uh, So one thing that people have been trying is, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, changing the goals of the interaction. So if your goal is not identity relevant, but your goal is to obtain accurate information, then when you're presented with one of your beliefs being false, you're more willing to sit with that and incorporate it into your ideology. And that decreases partisanship. Or um, if you think practically about people like judges, like justices in the court, Uh, who are trained rigorously to decrease the influence that partisan ideology has on the judgments they make. And we do see that happen effectively. So it may be that people just need to have like a, a workshop that they attend and they sit down and they are instructed in ways to focus on objectivity and reduce the heuristic influence that partisanship has on their decisions. Or a third option could even be creating a superordinate identity that people have that's more important to them than this partisan identity. So if you tell people to think about how do you feel about this issue as an English person or as a Scot or as an American versus how do you feel about this as a Democrat or someone in the Labour Party or a Tory, um, that can also help people get out of these like lower level partisan identities and focus on something that's important for the greater good.
0: I started this journey wanting to understand why there is so much division between voters in the US. I always felt that this division was being stoked by those who would benefit from it, and I just keep coming back to that email which I received after episode 1, the one which said that politicians have created false choices and built false arguments to create a them vs us, with this magnified and exploited by the media. I don't really believe that people fundamentally want different things but I do believe they are being manipulated by politicians and the media for their own personal gain. Which leaves me wondering, where does this all end? This show was written and narrated by myself Peter McCormack, with additional production and sound design by Danny Knowles. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the safest and best place to buy and sell Bitcoin, Available at Kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I am Peter McCormack. Head over to Defiance.News where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Also, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, please head over to our sister podcast, What Bitcoin Did.